Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. In this episode, we delve into the original founding of Santa Elena on what is now Paris Island, the French and Spanish battle over the territory, and how a bad case of indigestion changed the course of American history as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Rich Thomas is a 23-year resident of Hilton Head and founder of Legacy Leadership of the Low Country. They specialize in experiential leadership and team development programs using historic events as a framework for learning. He is also owner and a guide for Hilton Head History Tours. Rich also has a book available called Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina at the forefront of American history. It focuses on singular stories of leadership in various contexts to track and reveal a remarkable pattern of leading-edge developments which solely directed or heavily influenced the subsequent course of history across the entire American landscape. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jay. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Rich, share with us a little about yourself and how you became interested in low country history. Well, that really goes back to my family's experience on Hilton Head, which goes back to 1971, uh, full-time, when my parents retired down here. And then we naturally started coming down at least once a year, uh, usually more than that, to visit. And uh, in the mid-70s, my mother gave me a book that had been written by a woman named Virginia Holmgren that talked about the history of Hilton Head. It was called Hilton Head Island, a Sea Island Chronicle. And uh, that book just covered so much incredible history that it grabbed me right away. And over the years, as I came down, I went to see a number of the historic sites. And then when we moved down here full time, I started to get a lot more in-depth interested in it. And that's kind of led me to where, where things are today. You know, knowing the history and understanding how unique it is has really made me want to tell the stories. And that's that's how I come to be on your show, I guess, writing a book and publishing some articles and those types of things. Well, before we get into the founding of Santa Elena, tell us a little bit about your tour company, who it's for, and what they can expect to learn uh, and see during a trip. Sure. I mean, we basically have uh, two types of tours. One is a bus tour. It's a public tour. It's not operative right now because of COVID, but we hope soon that it will be able to be uh, to resume operations. And then we offer private guided tours, and it's really of the island's history, and it covers pretty much a 500-year lifespan that goes from uh, the early 1500s up until the founding of Sea Pines in the 1950s. And we cover five different historic sites, each one of which is the site of a significant uh, event or building or something that dates back to a period of Hilton Head's history that it relates to. And, you know, we, we talk about the stories of that location. We get out and walk around a bit and then hop in the car and head to another one. And although we only stop at five, we end up talking about a number of other sites that are along the way as we're uh, as we're driving. It's uh, visiting a site from, let's see, I guess where we would start is where the first settler on the island lived. And then we would go to a Native American shell ring, which is a, a structure of shellfish remains that dates back to about 3500 BC. And then we have, uh, we have uh, a Revolutionary War site 
We also have an antebellum plantation site. We have a um, we have a number of Civil War sites, and then probably the crown jewel of Hilton Head is the site of the village of Mitchellville, which was the first fully self-governing freedmen's community in the United States. Really? Yes. If our listeners want more information on the tours uh, as they get up and running, where should they go to? Well, the easiest uh, easiest thing is to go to www.hiltonheadhistorytours.com. And that'll take them to our site, and that'll give them a good bit of information about it. There's also a phone number that they can call if if that information is not adequate. Let's move on to Santa Elena, because that's what this podcast is all about. Because the English wrote the history, Jamestown gets the credit for being the first American settlement in what would become the colonies. But Santa Elena, established 41 years earlier by the Spanish, deserves credit for being the first long-standing settlement in the future colonies, correct? Absolutely right. I mean, it's a it, it's a fact that really was lost uh, for many years. A lot of that's because, as you said, the victor writes the history, and the English ended up being the dominant colonizing power in North America, at least on the eastern coast of North America. And you know, the the time from essentially after Columbus discovered America until even Jamestown wasn't very well known. It was most of us learned about Plymouth Rock, which was you know a hundred and gosh a hundred and thirty years after Columbus first sighted lands to the north. Yeah, I mean it it is it is the place where things were happening for the Spanish in. North North America without question from the year 1566 on, and it uh, lasted 21 years. The colony lasted 21 years before uh, it ended up getting folded into the struggling colony at St. Augustine at that time. Why does St. Augustine get left out of the discussion? It was actually established before Santa Elena, I guess probably what, nine, 10 months? Uh, it was actually established five months uh, before or six months before Santa Elena was established. I guess it gets left out because it really wasn't much more than a military outpost in the beginning. It was named a city and it legitimately holds the claim to being the oldest city in America in that it was founded in September of 1565. It was able to be declared a city under Spanish law, and the Spanish were incredibly rigorous about things like that. They had very strict uh, formulas and policies. They had layouts for all of the cities that they would form in an unknown land or an alien land. And a lot of that dated back to the time when they were forcing the Moors out of Spain, and they would establish a foothold in a foreign territory even though it was part of the Iberian Peninsula. And then they would build around that foothold. And that formula lasted to the years when they started exploring to the West. And those explorations led them to North America. But St. Augustine was able to be declared a city under Spanish law because there were three wives present. And one of the things that the Spaniards learned about colonizing a new land was that if you just put soldiers out there by themselves, they would cause a lot of mischief and they'd fight amongst themselves and they declared that you basically needed women to keep them calm. So uh, (laughs) that became a requirement for being named a city. So it was named a city on September 8th of 1565. And then in April of 1566, Santa Elena was founded and became a city immediately. And starting a couple of years later, it was the capital of Spanish Florida, and it remained that way. Uh, The maps at the time didn't even show St. Augustine. Uh, The maps only indicated one Spanish town, colony, place name, location, 
on the East Coast, and that was Santa Elena. Back in the 14, 15, 1600s, the English, the French, the Spanish, and the others were racing to expand their territories and new trade routes. Why was that? Well, you had a number of things going on. I mean, I guess probably the most pragmatic piece of it was that they needed money. I mean, we, we were, were talking about countries that were basically fighting the Crusades in the Middle East for centuries prior to the end of the 1400s. And by that time, the cost of maintaining armies and navies and all of that rest doing battle with the Ottomans and you know the forces from the Middle East had sapped most of the wealth of the major powers in Europe that were all Christian countries. So they needed new sources of wealth. And uh, there were early reports from the West that there were untold riches to be had. And so that spurred them uh, to go in that direction. They also had all of these nation states that were starting to kind of rise up across Europe. And, you know, they're all looking to expand their dominion. And so that kind of intercontinental strife or intracontinental strife over in Europe spawned the need to look to expand the dominion. And especially as if a country recognized itself as kind of the uh, arm of the Catholic Church, as Spain did, uh, it sought to propagate the faith, go into new lands, get new Christians for the church. And so those were all very powerful motivators. But at the root of it all, I would say is, is also the end of the um, traditional source of spices from the Far East and the Middle East. And the Ottoman Empire had pretty much put a stop to a, to the spice trade, and spices were valued in Europe and uh, very necessary. And so the need to find new routes to the Far East was another thing that drove exploration to the West. They all expected to find the mythical Northwest Passage, that direct water route to Asia. And that was really one of the reasons that the Port Royal Sound, which is just to Hilton Head's north, became so important strategically. They believed that that might be one of the possible ways through. That, the Chesapeake Bay and the St. John's River in Florida were the, were the, were the ones that were viewed as the major possibilities. King Philip II of Spain was a central figure in Santa Elena's. Tell us about him. Yeah, what a, what a fascinating character. Um, uh, he was at the, at the age of about 14. He was commanding armies uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, he became a military prodigy, really, uh, because of that. And uh, his father was Carlos V of Spain, who was Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, his mother was Il Isabella of Portugal. And they basically united Isabella's marriage and Carlos's marriage, united the country of Spain uh, really for the first time. Philip was brought up in a politically savvy environment. His father was uh, masterful in that regard, mainly through the ties that Spain had to the Catholic Church. But, um, you know, there were uh, he was he was married four times. He had four wives, uh, kept him very, very busy. But those were mostly political marriages that were arranged uh, for him by his father. And during his time on the throne in Spain, he also uh, was held the title of king or viceroy or regent of eight other European countries, including England and uh, Ireland and Portugal and Italy, <laughs> just to name a few. So this was, a, this was an amazing man. But his military prowess is what really led him to be able to imagine the best way to finally effect a settlement in North America. And that was that was what he most wanted to do. And the, the, the reason that came about was really at the instigation of the church under a, a man named Pope Clement VII, who was a Frenchman. And the pope ended up re 
interpreting something called the Treaty of Tordesillas that the church had put forth in 1494, shortly after Columbus's return from the New World. And that that reinterpretation gave the French a feel that unless there were Spaniards on land that Spain claimed in the name of the Spanish throne, those lands were open to French claim. And so that kind of started them coming over. And Philip was really on top of all of that. And he had very well-placed spies in France, and they would give him great intelligence So he was able to anticipate a little bit some of the French moves. And he got word fairly early on in uh, about 1858 that they were starting to consider an expedition to Spanish lands to claim any unoccupied territory. And so that led him to issue a couple of edicts in 1558-1559 that essentially stated that the most important thing that Spaniards in the New World had to do was to establish a settlement at what the what the Spaniards called Hilton Head Island, which was La Punta de Santa Elena. And that was an edict that went out from him in 1558 and 1559. That ended up preceding a French attempt to settle the Port Royal Sound area, the Punta, and, uh, you know, the later Spanish settlement of Santa Elena in the Port Royal Sound. So that's a long-winded answer about Philip, but that's how he kind of figured into the picture. Who did he end up choosing to establish Santa Elena? Who was his lead explorer? Well, when I when I talked about his military prowess, he was very connected to the Spanish Navy and the Spanish Army forces at the time. And there was one man in particular that had distinguished himself throughout his military career, and he was a captain of a ship. He was an admiral in the Mediterranean fleet. He had done a number of uh, very sensitive missions for the throne of Spain and had done and and pulled them off all successfully, basically. And that man's name was Pedro Menendez d'Avales. And Menendez d'Avales was a, a figure larger than life. People who would know him and grew up in the era that John Wayne was playing his roles in the movies would think of him as the as the John Wayne of Spanish history. Just a, a tremendous, tremendous character and a fearless explorer, a very courageous entrepreneur. He had to put a lot of his own resources into affecting the settlement in the new world for the country of Spain. But that's who he, who he selected. So Menendez heads out, goes exploring the new world. The French were also making inroads in the same area at the same time. Yeah. Who was the lead French explorer? And tell us about what the French were doing at that point. So the lead French explorer was Admiral Gaspard de Coligny. And here on Hilton Head Island, we call him Coligny. He was the one that really was behind all of the French expeditionary movements. And he was the one in citing the throne to uh, make these aggressive moves towards Spanish territory. But I guess what I wanted to what I wanted to say prior to that is that you had so much that was was taking place around the religious wars in, in Europe at the time as well. And those religious wars uh, saw in France, especially the rapid spread of the Calvinist movement and uh, the, the Protestant Reformation took its hold there very quickly. And the Catholic armies and the Protestant armies were at war in in France, really, from approximately 1550. 1551 on, in one way or another. And Coligny was the head of all the forces, and he decided that in addition to finding a place from which he could raid uh, Spanish treasure fleets coming out of the Caribbean up toward Europe, uh, he would also want to be able to find a place that the persecuted French Huguenots might be able to 
um, escape to. So very much like the pilgrims and and uh, the escape from uh, England a little bit later on. But that that's one of the one of the things that he wanted to do. And modern modern historians have begun to think that Coligny actually had a Machiavellian purpose, and that was that he wanted to start a war between France and Spain. And he felt the best way to do that was to send a fleet over to claim Spanish land, uh, kind of in your face move. That's a good way to start a war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the sending of the fleet over, a lot of people think was, was his way of trying to get relief for the Protestant armies in France from the pressure of the Catholic armies, because if they had to fight a war with Spain, they couldn't be fighting a war with the Protestants in their own country. So those, that was one of the reasons that France was was very involved at the time. Menendez actually, though, Jay, started going over to combat French influences in the New World in, in 1551. And uh, his first voyage over, he actually had a license from the king to plunder and capture uh, French corsairs, French uh, pirate ships or privateer vessels, actually, in the Caribbean. And he was he was there. Uh, he was uh, successful in the beginning, and then he was captured by the French. And during his capture by the French, he was imprisoned for a period of about two weeks, during which period he was able to arrange for a ransom of about 1,080 gold pesos to ransom himself and his ship, which was a pretty amazing feat given the fact that he's imprisoned in, in a French ship. And when he escaped, he had been able to pick up the intelligence during his imprisonment that the French were planning a a, a possible uh, fleet to the Spanish possessions in the Caribbean to raid them and plunder them and take the wealth back to France. And so he ended up getting uh, the governors of the Spanish territories to sign a statement that basically said they felt an immediate threat. And then he took that and ran back to Spain. 1553, he lands in Spain and tells King Carlos at the time that they need to send an armada over to the Caribbean. Between 1551 and 1573, he made over 50 round-trip transatlantic crossings, even though he was tied up in Spain for about six or seven of those years uh, in various legal entanglements of one sort or another. That's kind of, that's kind of the background as to what was going on there. But Ribot, Ribot was the was the man who was credited with making the first inroads for the French in North America, and that was in 1562. So the French essentially were just pirating what the Spanish were doing in the in the Caribbean. The Spaniards were shipping stuff back to Europe and Spain, and the French were down there just you know give us all your money. There was a thing. lot of that. There was a lot of that. They had their own colonies down there too on on the French. Uh, in the French West Indies, Martinique and Guadeloupe and Montserrat and, and those kind of places. They were constantly going at each other, you know, throughout their history, really. Now, where were the English in all this? Were they just farther up north? Yeah. Or were they even exploring in the in the Caribbean? They have the Bahamas, obviously. That's a British territory, but... Yeah, no, I mean, they were a little later. They don't really get active until, at least in the, in the New World, they're not tremendously active until, well, the first voyage is, is Cabot in uh, in 1497 and he but that's up north and so the english end up focusing most of their efforts on the fur trade in the north uh, in the beginning of the 1500s and then a little bit later on they get more interested in the southeast and the atlantic coast and the indies they don't really form a lot of their colonies on the caribbean islands until the early really early 1600s shortly before they actually 
formed the province of Carolina in 1663. So they were they were kind of restricting their activities to the northern part of the New World prior to that. In your book, Backwater Frontier, you share an encounter between the French and the Spanish that really, when I read it, it was like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> the The Spanish fleet in Menendez, they've been battered badly by storms, and they limp into San Juan, Puerto Rico. He had 17 ships. He's down to five, and he gets minimal repairs and then heads north to go find the the French fleet that he knows is out there somewhere. And they are sitting in the mouth of the St. John's River. And he pulls up next to them in ships that equate to, at this point, beater Chevys with one curb feeler left <laughs> and starts insulting the French, the whole your mother smells of elderberry type thing. And you really have to have some cojones to pull off that kind of a stunt. You also have to be a really, really good sailor to do that. Why did the French not sink them right there? And what happened after that? Well, what's kind of interesting is the, the ships that were there in the mouth of the St. John's were Rebo's four main galleons, really, that, that were in, in the fleet. His fleet was only about seven ships. He had really come over on a resupply mission initially for the uh, established fort at the St. John's River. And a couple, of the, a couple of the French ships were further up a river, but the four biggest ones were anchored at the mouth of the St. John's. So when Menendez arrives with his fleet, he has five ships. And so he'll end up in this incredible feat of seamanship, bringing this 960-ton galleon right in between Rebo's flagship, the Trinité, which was probably about a 700-ton ship, and another one that was about a 300-ton vessel. And he brings his ship right up in between and pulls the stunt that you talked about before. So number one, the French are outnumbered. Number two, many of the men are on shore at Fort Caroline. So really, it's they would not have thought to fight. They only thought to flee. And that's exactly what happened. When the Spaniards went to move uh, the San Palayo, uh, the Menendez's flagship, closer to Ribot's flagship so that they could jump from one deck to the other, the French ended up cutting their anchor hawsers and fleeing out to sea. And their ships were in perfect shape where, Rebo, I mean, where uh, Menendez's ships were pretty messed up, so they couldn't keep up. And after a couple of days, Menendez calls off the chase and heads back to St. Augustine. And then the story gets really interesting from there. The French ended up landing, what, south of St. Augustine, is that correct? Yeah, uh, well, they, they most most of the crossings would end up, whether as magnetic deviation in their, their headings or whatever, not that they had you know, really accurate compasses at the time. But whether it was magnetic deviation or, or, or something else, their courses tended to carry them south of where they were headed. So in many cases, they'd be headed toward the Chesapeake Bay. Because Chesapeake Bay was, that was the imagined mother load. That was where they thought was the passage to Asia. But they would land anywhere really typically from about Jacksonville, Florida, down to Cape Canaveral. Those were the most common landing places. And yes, Rebo had originally come in around Cape Canaveral, and then he sailed up to the north. Um, he had actually been to the location of Fort Caroline two years previously, so he knew where to go, but he couldn't remember exactly the heading to Fort Caroline. And so uh, he just kind of went up the coast until he found it. When Menendez limp limped into Puerto Rico, 
he was trying to get to North America before Rebo. He was trying to prevent the resupply mission that Rebo was on to Fort Caroline. And so that was one of the reasons he only was able to spend a few days in Puerto Rico getting those ships repaired. So when he leaves to come over, he is um, he's going to land at Cape Canaveral about the same time on the same day that Rebo pulls into the mouth of the St. John's River. He'll then head up the coast and he'll you know, drop a couple of men off at St. Augustine, give him directions for the location to start building a fort, and then he continues sailing north. And that's when he sees Rebo's ships. So that's kind of the the, the genesis of that piece of this. But once, um, once Rebo's ships flee out to sea and they go back to St. Augustine, they un- start unloading the supplies from Menendez's fleet. And you'll know where St. Augustine has an island uh, out, out in front and then a bay, and then the city of St. Augustine is on the mainland behind that. Well, it didn't used to be that way, but uh, at that time, what, what they were doing was putting the supplies on the mainland. And so while Menendez is in the middle of unloading all of the stuff from his ships, these four masts of Rebo's ships show up. And Menendez's men are all ferrying supplies across the bay in small boats. And so he is almost captured when this is going on. And they manage to escape in small boats across the bay to the this very minimal fort that they had already built on the other side. Rebo will blockade the harbor. He's planning an attack on the, on the fort in the town. And two days later, uh, 12th of September, a uh, hurricane blows in and with winds from the north forces Rebo's fleet offshore to the south. And uh, what's going to happen during his absence from the from uh, St. Augustine, Menendez is going to figure, well, that storm is powerful enough to keep them away from going to the north again. So this may be a perfect time to attack the fort. And he's actually going to go up. He'll attack Fort Caroline. They have minimal defenders there. In a blinding rainstorm, they go in. They slaughter 132 of the defenders. About 40 escape over the wall of the fort into small boats. And those small boats, they will sail for France. And um, what happens with Rebo's men in the storm after being forced to the south, the winds shift to the east and they're forced up on the shoals of Cape Canaveral. And so those ships will end up wrecking on those shoals. The survivors swim ashore. Uh, there were about 250 survivors total. Rebo splits them into two groups uh, to help avoid contact with hostile Native Americans and orders them to march north overland back up to Fort Caroline. And when they're marching back up to Fort Caroline, they come across this body of water that they can't they can't cross. And that's the Matanzas Inlet south of St. Augustine. And that's where Menendez will lead men from St. Augustine and capture and execute most of the Frenchmen uh, in those groups as heretics. Uh, he'll end up capturing about 100 of them eventually and taking them down to the governor of Cuba as a gift of slaves. At that point, uh, the French are out of Fort Caroline. Most of them have been captured off the peninsula of La Florida. So it looks like one of his objectives in his mission, which was to expel the French from Florida, was accomplished. And the following spring, he'll go further north and establish Santa Elena. That's kind of the short version of that story. So that pretty much ends the French down in the southeast United States uh, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, there's one one uh, one occasion that that happens a couple of years later, and I think it's uh, I think it's uh, 1568, where a man named Dominic de Gorge will lead a contingent of about three ships, and they'll come in and they'll attack the Spanish 
at what they what the Spaniards now call Fort San Mateo, which is the old Fort Caroline. And they'll burn the fort to the ground and execute the Spaniards. And when the Spanish executed the Frenchmen at Fort Caroline, they left their, a number of their bodies hanging with signs on the fort walls that said, these men are hanged as heretics, not as Frenchmen. And then the French leave a sign when they go to San Mateo and slaughter the Spaniards that says the French version of the same thing, basically. So Menendez then goes and establishes Santa Elena. Why did they pick that point? What was so strategic about Port Royal Sound and Santa Elena? So so when, when explorations began and, and you can go back to 1513 when Ponce de Leon discovers Florida and names it La Florida. Uh, he'll go back to the island of Hispaniola and lots of stories about this beautiful land that he's discovered with friendly natives, etc. And that'll start a wave of scouting cruises, just exploratory cruises north along the coast of America. And one of those is in about 1514 to 1515, a man named Pedro de Salazar. It will cruise into Port Royal Sound. And uh, in his reports, which were largely unwritten and communicated verbally when they get back, because the king by that time had prohibited any indigenous people's enslavement. And most of these scouting trips were to scout new sources for slaves for the West Indies. Anyway, Salazar is the first one that comes in and he reports this wonderful, wonderful port with ample water and game on the lands around it. And that'll lead to a series of these voyages. And one will come in in 1521. And four years later, the same man comes back on a scouting voyage for um, a guy named Lucas Vasquez de Aon. And here on Hilton Head, we call him the Alien. And uh, he he will end up attempting to establish a colony originally intending to be at the Port Royal Sound based on those former reports. The Sound is also the second largest and second deepest body of water on the East Coast. And the largest is the Chesapeake Bay. The deepest is New York Harbor. And those facts were well noted by the early Spanish and French explorers and even by English pirates that started to operate down there during that period. And so uh, it was viewed uh, because of its depth and because of its size as a wonderful place to house a large fleet. Uh, it also just so happened to be right at the location where the Gulf Stream starts to kind of turn to the north uh, east toward toward the British Isles, toward Europe, and where the westerlies converge. And so the convergence of the westerlies and the Gulf Stream meant that's the place where ships are going to get the greatest boost in their trips back to Europe. So the combination of, of those factors really meant that Port Royal Sound was a desirable and desired targeted strategic location by the major powers of Europe really before Santa Elena was founded. Santa Elena is established and lasts for quite a long time. It was, I guess, what, 20, 21 years? 21 years, yeah. But it nearly failed in 1569 how tough was it for those settlers, and what was the miracle of Santa Elena? That's uh, a great. That's a great story. I mean, life for an early colonial settler, whether it was at Jamestown in the 1600s, or whether it was in Florida in the 1500s, or in South Carolina in the 1500s, for that matter. I mean, it literally was a daily struggle for survival. Most of the ships came over with a very finite amount of supplies on board to last them until hopefully they would be able to find sources of food locally. And 
Typically, they viewed the sources of food as the indigenous peoples who lived nearby when they were planning where to locate their settlements. And, you know, in the beginning, the Native Americans were friendly and welcoming to the foreign explorers that landed in their land. Over time, obviously, the habits of, of those invaders and the attitudes, the way they treated the Native Americans for the most part as lesser human beings got to them and, and hostilities ended up ensuing. But I mean, it was, it was, it was extremely difficult to survive. And very often, uh, whether the Native Americans were going to be helpful or not was a matter of whether their food supply was adequate. And if it wasn't, they weren't. And if it was, they were very generous with it. So by 1569, the relations had you know, soured to a certain point. There was a drought, a massive drought that had taken place. Uh, food was extremely short. Uh, the Spaniards were not uh, in favor of eating things like oysters and clams at the time. They didn't really know how to harvest them. They depended on maize from the Native Americans for the most part. And so when those supplies weren't available, I mean, you actually had the settlers of Santa Elena who were approximately 372 people living in about 40 homes at that point who are chewing on rawhide for uh, sustenance, trying to get anything they can out of that. So the, the so-called miracle of Santa Elena really uh, happens a couple of days before Christmas in 1569. And the Roman Catholic priest in the church that was there at the time, and daily mass was a routine part of the life at Santa Elena, was uh, giving them a sermon on the trials of the Israelites after fleeing from Egypt through the wilderness and, you know, being short on all kinds of food and everything else, and that the miracles occurred for them and that the Spaniards needed to persist and keep going. And that was the homily that he delivered. And then, uh, as the story goes, when the first parishioner was reaching their home after leaving the mass, the bell on the tower of the church sounded with the signal that a ship had been sighted at the mouth of Port Royal Sound. And as it turned out, that ship was a Spanish resupply vessel, and the food was delivered the next day. And the famine that had been in place was lifted, at least for the time being. Uh, and that, that is, uh, you know, as the history has recorded it, a true story of Santa Elena in 1569. But in reality, uh, it was a struggle. And they went through cycles of feast and famine at Santa Elena, uh, really all the way up until about 1583. And by 1583, they were relatively self-sufficient. Menendez traveled between Europe and Santa Elena quite a bit. And in 1571, he secured a tremendous amount of commitment from King Philip. It was really an unprecedented amount of money. Tell us about that and where it went from there. What had happened in the in the two to three years prior to 1571, Menendez had uh, secured a new group of colonists for Santa Elena, had uh, procured a lot of new supplies with his own funds, had gone back to uh, the uh, mainland and basically had run out of money by 1569. And in 1569, he went back to Spain and pleaded with King Philip to increase the subsidy for the settlements in La Florida. And Philip didn't do that at, 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 at that instant. Uh, he referred the matter to the Council of the Indies. 
And while they were debating, uh, Menendez went about continuing his efforts to find more colonists, etc. Well, the council finally ruled in favor of the king increasing the subsidy, and it was about 400,000 what they called Maravedis uh, in our money, a uh, little over a million dollars uh, at that time. And in today's money, it would be a phenomenal amount. And based on that increase in the subsidy, Menendez decided to locate his family at Santa Elena. And so he picked them up lock, stock, and barrel, two generations of his family, and took them back over to the New World, landed in Santa Elena in July of uh, 1571, declared it to be the capital of Spanish Florida, and he made it his official residence. And that was an incredibly powerful statement at the time, because not that many years before, even the very well-established colonies in Puerto Rico and Cuba and Hispaniola had not been places that many Spaniards would want to bring their families to reside. Menendez's act symbolically was very important for Spanish investment in the new world. What ended up happening after that was that there were, in fact, more uh, opportunities for people to support the expeditions that would come to the New World, to Santa Elena, and attempting colonies and other locations after that. Really, Santa Elena was the only one that stuck. And so in by 1573, Menendez had basically run out of his own resources again. The subsidy that had been a huge amount of money initially, now that he had four colonies trying to survive in the, the New World in, in La Florida, was not adequate to support the entire effort. And so he decided to make another trip back to Spain to request more money from Philip and get more colonists. And he actually obtained that. In 1574, Menendez was once again due to sail from Spain with just a staggering armada of 150 ships, 13,000 people on those ships, but he never made the trip. What happened and how did that potentially change history? Well, what's what's interesting, Jay, is that when he goes back to Spain and arrives initially, he has an audience with the king and he requests the uh, increase in the subsidy once again, informs the king that he's going to gather more colonists. And the king appoints him very suddenly and unexpectedly in September of 1573 as the captain general of a new treasure fleet to go to uh, New Spain, Mexico, and the West Indies. And so he starts gathering people for that, assuming that the subsidy for Florida is going to be granted as well. And then surprisingly, in February of 1574, all of a sudden he is named Captain General of a Great Armada to sail in the English Channel and rid the English Channel of French pirates from Cadiz all the way up to Flanders. So he starts gathering the ships and the men for that expedition. And that's going to take him up until September. And in September, uh, there's a ceremony where he has commissioned the admiral of that armada. And it has over 150 ships and 13,000 men, as you said. And the night of the ceremony, he starts feeling feverish. And he'll get sicker and sicker. And, you know, on the 17th of September, he will end up succumbing to what was called a severe case of indigestion. Uh, Most people look at it today and think it was probably typhus of some sort that he died of. But he was able to attend to his will, and he attempted to collect some of the debts that were owed him, and, and he died abruptly. What happens after that is that by Spanish law, His titles and his wealth passes to his heirs. His only son, Juan, had been lost in an expedition to the Indies 
in uh, 1563. So it went to his daughter. And because women couldn't hold titles and, and positions in the Spanish government at the time, it ended up being her husband, his son-in-law, that ended up being the new governor in Adelantado of La Florida. You know, those guys were just incapable of maintaining good relations with the Indians. They were uh, greedy. They were corrupt. And so immediately Santa Elena started to decline. Uh, relations with the Native Americans were horrible. And in 1576, the local Native Americans in this particular island, who were called the Eskimaku, along with a group called the Arista, who are up near Kusahatchee, banded together and invaded Santa Elena. The island, Paris Island. They actually went on to Paris Island. Uh, they attacked settlers' homes. They forced settlers into the fort. And after about 10 days of being cooped up in the fort with no food, horrible sanitation problems, and that type of thing, 30 women whose husbands had been recently killed by the Indians captured the governor, whose name was Miranda, Hernando de Miranda at the time, and threatened. They took him out to the large warship that was in the Beaufort River, anchored in the Beaufort River, and, and threatened to hang him from the yardarm if he did not issue the evacuation order, which he promptly did. And uh, they ended up escaping as they watched the Indians burn the city, the fort, to the ground. That was in 1576. From that point on, Santa Elena struggled and had problems. It was thriving from an economic standpoint by 1583. But what could have happened? Well, you, you think about it. Let's say Menendez had lived and had continued his, his rule of La Florida. Um, things were starting to you know, prosper. Uh, they were stabilized. And had he not died prematurely, that could have been a very different hold on the southeast coast that the Spanish would have established. Uh, that could have prevented some of the English inroads. But that fleet that he was supposed to sail in 1574, most of the court onlookers believed that a fleet that size would never be established for other than one purpose, and that would be the invasion of England. And of course, as we know, that doesn't happen until uh, 1588 with the Great Armada. And that invasion fails largely due to a storm that uh, basically wrecks a lot of the Spanish fleet and keeps the soldiers, Spanish soldiers from Flanders from reaching England. Um, had the Spanish won, it would have been a very different outcome, very likely that, you know, our, our native language would be Spanish. And as I always love to say, I mean, if the things had worked out differently between the Spanish and the English on the southeast coast, Pedro Menendez Davales could very well hold the same position in our country's history as George Washington does. You know, think of him as father of our country gives you a real different outlook on the course of our history. It absolutely does. I'm always amazed when it go back and learn something new in history, the amount of impact the weather has had. You look yeah. at, you know, D-Day and, you know, they were held up for days and days and days because of the overcast conditions and all that. You go back to the Battle of Yorktown in Washington, Cornwallis can't get across the river because of a storm and ends up having to surrender. And that pretty much wins the revolution for the American army. You look at Menendez and these storms and these hurricanes, they didn't have weather tracking back then. It was, you know, the wind starts to blow, all of a sudden starts rain. And before they know it, they're in the middle of a, a cat four or a cat five, as we call it these days. And, you know, really just, you know, the weather just plays a huge impact. I'm not even sure that the weather really gets enough credit for the changes in, that it caused in, in history. I would totally agree with that. Um, I know it doesn't. And when you, you know, you talk about the difficulty of surviving in an early settlement, I mean, they were really dependent upon resupply from Europe. 
in the beginning, and they couldn't get resupply from the West Indies because the people in the West Indies were better off. They were more established, but they didn't have a lot of extra to go around either. So, yeah, I mean, and, and weather meant that resupply by ship from foreign locations was very unpredictable and undependable. And that's exactly what happened. What was the ending for Santa Elena and why did it happen? Probably the the best answer to that is that in 1585, reports of Sir Francis Drake and a very large English fleet being put together in England reached the Spanish governors in Cuba and Hispaniola. They rushed to improve defenses and all of those types of things, which they do. And then in January of 1586, Drake's fleet enters the Caribbean and goes in order from Cartagena in Colombia, sacks it and burns it to the ground, comes up to Hispaniola and goes to Santo Domingo, captures the city, offers it up for ransom. And then even before the ransom is paid, they burn it. And then they sail over to Cuba, hoping to uh, take Havana. And of course, that harbor is so well defended and impregnable that they're chased away from the Havana Harbor by by the Cuban colony. And so then they turn their attentions to La Florida. They go up the coast, go to St. Augustine. That's the first one that they hit, and they will burn it almost to the ground in in 1586. They set their sights on Santa Elena and sail to the north. And as they round the shoals off of Tybee Island, a storm hits. There you go. The weather again, right? A storm hits, uh, ends up kind of dispersing Drake's fleet a little bit. And in the darkness and the stormy weather, they miss the entrance to Port Royal Sound. Weather is coming out of the north, probably a nor'easter again, uh, but it is preventing uh, them from sailing into Port Royal Sound. So they continue to the north and end up going into St. Helena Sound, the next sound north. And the next day, the wind has shifted to the south, so they can't sail head head into the wind. And they decide they're going to head up to Roanoke Island which was attempting a settlement at that time. And they end up picking up the very disgruntled survivors from Roanoke and taking them back to England. But that started a great debate in the world of the Spanish court about whether or not Spain could really defend two forts that widely separated on the Southeast Atlantic coast adequately. And uh, that debate was going on in the Council of the Indies for probably almost eight months. And then there were some people who were in Hispaniola and Cuba who were investors in the St. Augustine settlement. Menendez had the Santa Elena settlement, and his heirs kept the Santa Elena settlement basically as their proprietary colony. But the uh, one in St. Augustine was open to investment, and there were a number of very highly placed officials down there that that had that. And then about that same time, um, the balance of trade started to shift from the West Indies to Central America and Mexico. And so the colony on the East Coast, Southeast Coast, was not necessarily as important as a colony on the Gulf would be at that point. And so those factors combined to have the Council of the Indies recommend to the king that Santa Elena be disbanded, uh, that the settlement be essentially dismantled, and that it be reconstituted down in St. Augustine. And St. Augustine in 1587 was was struggling. I mean, it was not a well-established colony. The infusion of the people from Santa Elena 
certainly helped get it there a lot quicker. And there are a lot of people that, that basically will maintain and argue from a historiographic standpoint that St. Augustine was not really a fully self-sustaining colony until the early 1600s, until the British started to have an influence there. But anyway, so it was, it was folded by royal order in 1587. The people of Santa Elena did not take kindly to that. By this time, that was their home. They'd established quite a place. When you think about Santa Elena, People who were born the year Santa Elena was founded were 41 by the time Jamestown was founded. These people were deeply invested in it, and suits were brought against the throne of Spain, and very few of them succeeded very well. But anyway, that, that's what was taking place there. Rich, that's an amazing story about the Spanish and the French and the establishment of, of Santa Elena, and hopefully it gives a lot of insight Uh, to those that live on the island or visit the island every year about the true history and the true beginnings of what will become the U.S. colonies and the Spanish setting up Santa Elena really, you know, just miles away from what is now Hilton Head Island. Rich, we really appreciate your insight and your research, and thank you so much for joining us on this show today. Jay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I, I always love to think about the fact that You know, we definitely have English roots, but we also have some Hispanic roots. And that today with the demographic shift in the population is something that I think is an interesting fact to understand. Anyway, thank you very much. Please visit HiltonHeadHistoryTours.com to find out more about Tours with Rich and look for Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina, at the forefront of American history. It is a great read. We will see you next time as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. 